Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We are here today with three very special guests. We're doing an episode on growth. Uh, I've done a few hundred podcasts, never done an episode on growth, so I'm very excited. We have three guests, which is a, uh, a rarity, but uh, speaks to the uh, the expertise in the room and the uh, seriousness of the subject matter. Mike, why don't you start with an introduction of yourself and your background and how that informs your, your approach to growth? Sure. So I am currently at Greylock, where I am an investor on the consumer team. Um, but that was pretty recent. So I joined there a few months ago. Prior to that, I had two roles, uh, leading growth, uh, most recently at Stitch Fix. And prior to that was at Tilt leading growth. Stitch Fix was more on the marketing side of things. So our COO brought me on with kind of the broad ask of establishing control of our user acquisition levers. Uh, that was after, uh, pretty healthy period of largely organic growth and strong retention under the conditions of supply constraint at at Stitch Fix. And so kind of a a cool journey to build out a growth function at a company that was already at scale. Prior to that was earlier stage doing it at Tilt, um, joining his early growth hire there, but in a very different context. Um, Before that, I had a few other stints, moved out here to the Bay Area about eight eight years ago to go to Stanford GSB and was doing consulting at Bain before that. Uh, My background originally in uh, undergrad was in engineering at Michigan. Cool. David, I'm I'm lucky enough to work with you now at OnDeck and Token Daily, but why don't you give a, a bit of your background as well? Awesome. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. So I, I studied economics and finance in undergrad and then took a job after school at Capital One, uh, getting into credit card analytics. Um, but then soon after that, I moved to San Francisco to get into kind of tech and, and startups more broadly, spent past five or six years working at LinkedIn, Tilt and Stitch Fix with Mike DeBow, and then most recently at, at Circle. And uh, across all of these companies, I focused uh, almost exclusively uh, within analytics but more specifically within uh, growth and, and product to, to help help inform and strategize within these companies. Yeah. Dan, how about you? So I've always been interested in um, consumer psychology, consumer companies. I started my career at uh, BCG, where I worked with companies like Disney, Starbucks, Nestle. Um, I was then an investor for a few years at a firm called uh, TSG Consumer and invest in branded consumer companies. I joined uh, Thumbtack after that in early 2014 when the team was about 30 people. Um, this was a smaller team than I had joined previously, but when I met the founders, it was like such an obvious fit. I think I always describe their team as uh, one of the best teams working on one of the hardest problems. I think they're well-suited for each other. Um, I got to work on the uh, growing the supply side of that marketplace uh, initially and then transitioned over to leading the, uh, the demand side, so very much followed kind of what we needed from a marketplace perspective. Uh, I recently started a uh, firm called Basis One. We help uh, founders and execs answer really messy growth and monetization questions as they're going through this hyper hyperscale uh, phase. And so we have a team of analytics uh, folks, researchers who help, uh, help answer some of those questions. Yeah. So collectively, you guys have a couple decades plus of of experience doing growth. When I, when I, I would like to start by trying to figure out what is, if you had to boil it down, what is sort of the expertise or skill set that that you have picked up that separates people like like yourselves from us normal people muggles as i call them how would you boil down what that expertise or what that skill set actually is 
Yeah, I mean, so I think the the term growth means many things to many people. So it's this really hard thing to define. I think like you could probably look at a couple of different inputs. One is a more tactical input, which is applying engineering to a traditionally marketing focused problem. And so this is like the early Facebook team and others that started to do this in a way that others hadn't. Others hadn't. I think there's like a broader application, which is just a data driven experimentation focused way to solve product and marketing problems, um, which is in some ways like an overreaction to a, t- a overly intuitive approach to building product that wasn't uh, uh, grounded in data. And so I think that uh, those two together result in this like, you know, you have these this new set of, of tools that you're using and a new way of measuring that and holding people accountable. It's really powerful. Um, I think we, we talk about all the ways that that backfired uh, and, and the way that it's now, now, um, resetting. But I think like having those two, uh, things together is what makes growth a really powerful discipline. Let's talk on that topic specifically. Can you, can you touch on how growth has evolved over time? Cause sort of when Andrew Chen was, was blogging or just started blogging, that was sort of a, like, that era, like what are the different eras of growth and how has the term you know, growth hacking or, or growth evolved over time? Yeah, totally. And I think actually growth hacking is the right, the right term to start with. And, yes. and when, when you think about, you know, this like very data driven approach, there's some really positive things about it. This idea that you can kind of like throw every, anything to the wall and see what sticks. And if you use the right metrics, you know, the, the winner is a winner and that'll tell you where to go with your product. I think, uh, there's a lot of problems with that approach that we're starting to see, uh, now. And that's, you know, people testing, uh, without paying attention to whether they really understand their customers or whether they really have product market fit. And so you can optimize yourself into the ground as, as many customer, uh, many companies have done. Um, and so I think where it's going now is basically a, uh, reaction to, to that. And actually, I think we'll see actually fewer dedicated growth teams in the way that we have seen, uh, them historically and more people who are good at growth just becoming data driven product and marketing leaders. We're taking some of this and becoming built, building kind of well balanced growth and, and marketing teams. And so I think this is kind of the, the next kind of evolution of where, where it's going. I think that point's really important. Like if, if it's the modern wave of growth people are effective, they will almost have abstracted themselves out of jobs in a way where, you know, we talk about this a lot in Reforge, um, Dan, myself, and a bunch of others are involved helping, uh, and you have contacts in Reforge real quick. Yeah. So Reforge is actually, um, a program, an educational program that I, I respect deeply. I'm, I'm very loosely involved in, uh, is heavily involved, but, you know, basically is a, uh, a, a course to help train, uh, growth practitioners, uh, that are, that are mid-career folks that maybe come from different backgrounds in product analytics marketing that want to go and take on careers in growth. So, uh, and it's put on Andrew Chen, Casey Winters, Dan are involved, uh, Brian Balfour, a host of others that, um, really put together some great content there. Um, but yeah, we talk about this a lot in that group, which is, you know, if growth people are, you know, effective at what they do, they've almost abstracted themselves away. And I think that when, when I think about the way growth is evolving, I think when it, Andrew actually popularized it as, uh, I think growth hackers, the new VP marketing, I think is the original article he put out, which was really thoughtful, but I think that almost led to, uh, this belief that growth can be, you know, hacked, uh, growth can be, uh, accumulated by a number of, uh, you know, tricks that will end up growing a company. And really the way we talk about it is more of a foundational understanding of how your company grows, which really starts with analytics. Um, and then from that, there's kind of a, a set of a methodology and set of principles upon which you could really, um, you know, experiment over time. And that, that is something that I think can be, built into functions of product management or marketing. They don't necessarily need to be growth teams. But I think having a growth team in a company can be a big accelerant to actually getting to that place. Yeah. And to expand on that point, I think of growth as more of like a growth mindset for an entire company. And one of the the basics there is basically understanding 
what like what are the key drivers of your business like what what levers do you have what outputs are you looking for and kind of building basically a model or a framework to understand all those concepts and put it put it onto paper put it into like a spreadsheet um and then once you have those drivers and levers and inputs understood and outputs understood you can then try new things you can try different product launches you can try different a b tests you can try different marketing tactics or growth tactics but it boils down to really is understanding literally the model of the business right? and and thinking analytically about that. Or the business equation. Is the business, business equation, if you will. Yeah. We're going to get to how you guys did that in practice at Tilt, but just close the loop on sort of how growth has evolved over time. Is there sort of a simplistic, like the first generation, they prioritize this, the, we're in the second generation and we prioritize, you know, we think about it this way. And then the next, the next decade will look like that. Like how would you give sort of a, a nice wrap up uh, in terms of how the past, present, and future of, of how growth is seen in the industry. Yeah, I think V1 was we've got all these new levers. Um, no one else is using them, and so it's massively successful in many cases, right? But uh, if you do that uh, without paying attention to whether or not you understand your customers, you're building for them, and have product market fit, you can optimize yourself in the ground as many, many businesses have done. Um, I think V2 is taking many of that uh, those same levers and that same methodology and applying it to a much more standard product and marketing process. So I'm not sure I've got your three steps, but at least, least two, you know, taking some of these huge advantages and building it back into a more kind of traditional org structure. Yeah. I mean, this stuff was always done before. Well, I shouldn't say always. This stuff was done well before it was called growth. Like yes. if you think about the classic examples that are brought up, you know, the Airbnb Craigslist situ- thing, you know, even early days, PayPal virality and what they were doing, like it's, um, I don't think there were growth, dedicated growth teams in those companies at that time. These were just, I think, ways of building distribution into the product, uh, which is something that we talk about now in in the growth world. I think it just has a has a label nowadays. Right. Yeah. So if in five years or ten years we got the gang back together and we're coming forty four Montgomery and doing another podcast, how are we talking about how the past five to ten years have evolved in, in the realm of growth and, and where we're at now, ten years from now? I could zoom into the marketing ones. That's where my more recent experience on growth is. I think there's a recognition now, um, I'll reference Andrew Chen again. He has a concept of the law of shitty click throughs, which basically means that, you know, if you could find early, uh, early gains on a channel, they will not sustain as everyone else goes. And basically your click through rates will, um, decline with, with, you know, with scale and with volume and competition. So I do think, you know, we are in a wave right now of a lot of companies taking on a lot of venture money and putting that money over on paid acquisition channels, generally ones that have the highest audience or the greatest audience and the, uh, I guess, greatest ease of getting those channels up and running. So you're seeing Facebook and Google take a lot of dollars from VCs. You have a lot of, com- a lot of companies that have growth teams effectively running those budgets. And I think in some ways that actually can be one of the most low overhead ways to amplify and accelerate your growth as a company. But I think we're going to start seeing a lot of those stories as being, you know, short lived. And I think I would say, you know, the pendulum swinging back to product teams really operating with a methodical experiment driven way of actually building product and building distribution into product. I think that's, uh, I would say, I, I think we'll see the pendulum swing back that way versus kind of, I guess, uh, overzealous kind of marketing spend. Yeah. Yeah, I think in in 10 years from now, I think the concept of a growth team might be gone. And instead, it might be more back to like, again, to literally what Mike said, but like the pendulum swinging backwards to product teams and marketing teams, both of which deeply understand, again, the business equation and are making decisions with a clear understanding of what the desired output is. And 
maybe there's still like an analytics team to kind of like help empower both of those teams. But I think everyone in the company should be understanding of what the desired outcomes are and, and building things to that. Yeah. Another principle you guys have is that growth doesn't necessarily mean or isn't just acquisition. Talk, uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that comes out. It's all, all this stuff is tied together. I think when you're going and building your basic growth model, generally there's a principle called user accounting that again is very simple. I think social capital first put this out, but if you think about just like, you know, a financial accounting function, user accounting, if you look at MAUs at any time, it's a function of acquisition minus churn plus resurrection, basically. And so if you think about that equation, it's always higher leverage. Uh, to retain an existing customer than it is to go and acquire a new one if, uh, if your retention is, is, you know, subpar. So I think, you know, we talk a lot about retention. Retention also, I think, has the side benefit focusing on retention is, you know, you generally will understand why your users, why your power users are really loving and sticking with your product if you're focused on retention. Like the, the side effects of, or I guess the byproducts of going and, really deeply understanding your, your core users that those will trickle through the rest of the business, you know, um, in ways you can't necessarily measure up front. So I think we, we like to talk about retention a lot because it just, yeah, it, it really forces a deeper product understanding and has benefits to your acquisition. If you have higher, uh, you know, retention, for instance, you could actually, uh, afford to spend a little bit more on acquisition if you have higher LTVs downstream. So, uh, that, I guess that's just one way I'm sure Dan has a lot more on that. Totally. Yeah. I think one way to really land this point is to literally just do the math, like build the actual pretty basic spreadsheet model. It could be a couple tabs and it's amazing how few companies have done this actually. Um, but if you just break out your acquisition channels, how they convert and activate and then some cohorted retention that then builds uh, and the key is, you know, the model has to spit out users or dollars, which can then dr- drive more growth. So this is kind of self-perpetuating loop, but you get this series of coefficients you can play with. And when you play with the retention coefficient, the numbers go off the charts in a way that you see nowhere else. And so it's just like exceedingly clear when you look at this thing that that's the metric. And actually very often it's uh, specifically activation and onboarding or the, the, the moment at which new users become habitual users because you have this point to influence uh, or inflect the retention curve. Uh, and it's also something you can experiment on much faster because it's relatively early in a user's life cycle. But uh, when you look at it this way, it's really hard to ignore that that's the right thing to focus on. Even, you know, I get this question from companies a lot. We're like, well, we're pretty early stage, so we're focused on top of the funnel. That's what we should be doing. But actually, even for very early stage companies, it's usually the right way to think about it. Um, because it then gives you this asset in the form of deeper monetization or or something like that that lets you go then compete uh, you know on the acquisition front and so I, I, retention drives acquisition and not the other way around. And I think one that's like way to visualize this is even thinking about um, like a funnel versus like a loop. And I feel like focusing on like acquisition and the activation and all that is more of like a funnel approach um, versus focusing on like thinking about it in a loop where you have acquisition then you have new users that are engaged. Some of them will retain and some of those that retain will become power users and invite more people. Right. And thinking about it in the loop can lead to this like compounding growth that, and you can see like in a, in a Excel model, like it just, right. the growth in the future just like shoots up. Whereas funnels are short-sighted in some way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not that it's short-sighted. It's funnels are like linear and really growth loops can, can really compound. Um, I think to Dan, there's one other point I would underscore now, now with the investor hat on and, and what Dan mentioned is that, you know, when you're looking at retention, it's really helpful to actually separate that by acquisition source. And generally you'll see trends pop there, especially when you see companies getting deeper and deeper in paid acquisition, you will see pretty differing behaviors on people that were acquired from organic means or like 
word of mouth referral means than, uh, than paid channels. And then within paid channels, you'll probably see some range within there. It is, you will generally find in looking at companies that the most healthy, highest retained users are acquired either through referral or through organic means, which should make you look at, um, kind of, I guess, less, uh, less natural, less organic upper funnel measures differently. Yep. So Dan and Mike, both of you work now with seed series a and beyond companies who are leveraging your expertise and time, uh, to try to build growth teams, build, build loops, build systems, um, and just think about growth in, you know, their business equations at their company. What is sort of the highest leverage, uh, things that you do or advice that you give or systems that you implement in your limited time with the, with these companies? What, what common things do you keep coming back to or what misconceptions do you see that they often have? The number one thing I think is focus. Um, because when you have this discipline around what's driving a model, there's almost always one or two points in a product or in a, in a business model that have an outsized share of the leverage. And to be really good at them requires being, you know, best in the world competitive at those, those things. And most companies, no matter what stage, are trying to do too many things. Um, and if you can lay out this math for them, uh, or the conceptual model for them, it becomes very clear how to focus. And so I, I sometimes feel like uh, half of my job is, is talking companies out of ideas, actually, as long as you can direct that attention towards something that's really high leverage. Um, so that's probably the the, uh, the number one thing I spend time on. I think the most foundational one, I would say, is around the topic of analytics. And I think I'll say that as the headline. I think a lot of companies, when you think about analytics, they'll immediately go to the visualization side. So what tools am I signing up for? You know, the conversation will immediately go to choosing between, you know, heap versus mixed panel versus amplitude or something that kind of misses the point. I think when, when we talk about analytics, it's really around establishing a culture of experimentation and learning and the ability to actually measure what, what's working yeah. and, a lot of that comes down to like the boring stuff, like logging, uh, event tracking, um, instrumentation of your product. And, you know, for, especially for fast moving companies, I think it's very common to accumulate analytics debt. I think tech debt is a concept that's talked about more frequently, but analytics debt, just shipping products without making sure the features are logged correctly. It's just, it happens. Um, and so that's generally step one in my conversations with companies is can they answer basic fundamental questions about, the business and then about their features and how they grow. And that will generally uncover, I think, the areas they need to focus on at the start. To Dan's point too, that he mentioned earlier is like the foundational point is literally creating an Excel model and understanding the business equation. I think that is step one for every company that exists, really truly understanding how the business is run in terms of the numbers and what drives what. Yeah. Um, that leads to experimentation, innovation, everything else. But you need to really understand and be able to see clearly what's going on. I would say the other piece, you know, once that foundation is there, you know, I think a lot of, I think what you'll find growth teams have in common, whether they're working on product or, or marketing, you know, it's, it's curious. I would say it's structured curiosity is maybe how I'd frame it. Like you will see these teams have ideas flowing in from every corner and, and you want to really nurture that in a, in a company. Um, but you also want to make sure that it is going towards the right objectives. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of what, and I think you'll see growth teams with some scale start to do is develop a great experiment framework and then process to triage ideas. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a delicate balance where you don't want to just have like a long list of ideas that you could go test and then just run a culture of AB testing literally every one of those. But having, um, having a team that 
has a really fast kind of pace of experimentation, uh, rapid feedback loops, and then is, has a machine basically they could funnel and triage these ideas and then funnel the right ones through. I think that's what's actually really powerful to set up. And that could apply to product or marketing or, you know, in the case of Tilt, it was, we were doing it on community stuff. So I think that, that kind of experiment framework, uh, once you have the right analytics foundation down is really, uh, is really key. Has being an investor or a new reason investor changed your lens at all into how startups should be thinking about growth? Yeah, I mean it's it's a few months in. I would say it it it's helped me as far as really assessing the underlying health of a business. Um, I think when you when you do growth and when you're in these circles and have conversations with peers that have done it, you kind of start to develop a nose for what feels sustainable versus what isn't. So some of that is you know some of that will show up in the metrics. Others is like intangible when you're talking with these teams, like um, just the health of what they're doing. I would say the most recent, the most recent chapter at Stitch Fix, like looking a lot of, a lot of consumer businesses right now that are running, you know, increasingly large kind of, uh, marketing spend. I think being able to dig into that with a, with a greater level of sophistication than most investors, I would say has, um, has been helpful. Yeah. So help, help educate us. What, what's our signs of negative health versus positive health? What's, what's non-obvious? Yeah. Well, on the topic of paid marketing, um, I think, conceptually, you want to find businesses that are using it as an accelerant versus a crutch. And sometimes that's going to show up in the metrics. Other times it won't. Um, and but, what, what will show exactly? Like, what is the sign of, of that? Yeah. Uh, well, at the highest level, it's percentage of your new acquisition that's coming from paid versus organic. And also, like, are you spending on retention um, or is retention natural? Um, those are two two telltale signs. Um, then getting in there to, you know, there's, there's different benchmarks. So a lot of companies will look at LTV versus CAC. You want to be careful with that because getting too deep into LTV, I think Bill Gurley has a great post in this, the dangerous seduction of the LTV formula, I think it's called, but you know, um, a lot of companies will justify spend on marketing with some LTV number that may or may not actually materialize. And so looking for companies that have pretty tight paybacks, that would be a sign of health versus, you know, being a little bit too, too loose with that. Uh, but then I think even within, you know, if when you ask a company how they approach growth and the main answer is around paid marketing in some businesses, you're just not going to have that many on product levers and maybe that, that is necessary. Um, but I think even answering the question that way would be, could be a little bit concerning. Um, I think to David's earlier point on establishing some sort of a loop, like if you have a mechanic in your business where retention drives acquisition, or if you're a marketplace and you see kind of cross side network effects, things like that are generally signs that the company is doing something that is product driven or differentiated on, on kind of distribution versus just spending money in the same channels that everyone else is. Yeah. I think also like high level metrics are one thing you can see MAUs, you can see whatever the key metric is, but it's important to take it uh, a level deeper and understand of those MAUs in a given month. So like monthly active users, how many are are brand new versus how many are, are retained. And then similarly, it's important to understand like cohorts of users. So those that joined in the past month versus those that joined a year ago versus those that joined two years ago. And how, how are those like curves looking in terms of like retention and long-term value to the company? Yep. So really dissecting um, the high-level metrics, I think, is, is super important to understanding health of growth. 
Yeah, I think to me, one of the best litmus tests here is if you just took away anything that's non-organic acquisition, what's left? Like, is that a business you're still excited about? Um, and in many cases, if you looked at, uh, you know, Homejoy, many of these direct-to-consumer companies, even like Groupon from where it was to where it went today, like if you took away um, the acquisition that was unsustainable, you, you don't get super excited about the business underneath. Um, and I think there's an analytical way to just piece apart those and see what you're really investing in. Uh, and I think uh, the point on cohorting is exactly right. There should be at least some cohorts which totally flatten out or even be, improve uh, retention over time. Um, and if you don't see that, um, there's something really unsustainable happening. Cohorts yeah. don't lie. Like usually if you're right. like, cohorts will answer questions. It's uh, hard to game that. For you. Yeah. And I think to that point, you know, any metric can be gamed and growth teams are particularly clever at figuring out how to game metrics. And so just when you're, when you're setting these things up or even when you're setting up top line objectives in a company and cascading them down across teams. I think it's important to goal teams on the right, uh, on the right metrics. And so, you know, even if you have a user acquisition team who is gold on user acquisition, uh, pushing that a little bit further downstream should help. So, you know, if you could goal a UA team on either signups or on month one retained users, like do the latter because then any low quality users that you've acquired are not going to count towards that goal. Yeah. I'd like to put some of these principles in practice and see how you guys at your respective companies figured out the business equations and then what, you, what tangible lessons you took from those experiences that other entrepreneurs can, can now apply. So let's start with Tilt. How did you figure out the business equation at Tilt and what are tangible lessons that other entrepreneurs can learn from that experience? Yeah, so I'll, I'll approach that from a slightly more conceptual place, and then David could <laughs> jump into the, the hardcore modeling from it. So I think at, you know, at Tilt, I joined, our COO brought me on. Basically, that the company was growing at that point around like 20% month on month. We just raised our Series A from Andreessen. Uh, but we didn't really have an understanding of why we were growing and, uh, which is kind of an exciting place to be as a company. It's like, you're really just trying to catch up with yourself. Um, but it also is a little bit kind of dangerous to, to, you never know when that's going to stop. So what we did at the start there was really just try to develop a really deep understanding of who our most active and retained users were. And that basically translated to a lot of manual work at the start. So we rank ordered all of our. Let me take a step back for a second and actually explain what Tilt uh, was for, for those in the audience. So basically, we were we came up as a crowdfunding platform. Essentially, we were a social payments company that if you had Kickstarter and Indiegogo that were crowdfunding for creative projects or products, um, Tilt was trying to be more of a kind of micro crowdfunding company, if you will. Um, so small groups uh, really... Uh, raising money for little micro experiences. Um, think of it as a Venmo for groups here in the U.S. Uh, we had probably stronger product market fit internationally than we did in the U.S. But um, at the time I joined, this was in 2013, really we were being used for, for a really wide variety of things uh, from, you know, we crowdfunded the Jamaican bobsled team back to the Olympics. Uh, we were actually the initial crowdfunding platform that Soylent launched on. You know, our CEO's friends using it for party buses to widespread panic concerts, you know, so it was, um, it was really hard to kind of like derive signal from that and really understand like what, uh, what our most retained users look like. So when we ranked all of our organizers of the product, uh, by their, uh, frequency and intensity of usage, we, some trends started to pop and mainly those folks looked like really social organizers on college campuses. And so that led to a whole kind of journey of us really doubling down and trying to architect growth on college campuses and within those communities. But in order to do that, we had to say no, basically, to building product for all these other use cases that we deemed as non-core. And so really, um, 
I think step one was understanding who we were using for and why they were using it. And that's just from a product development standpoint. As far as how we modeled that, I think that, you know, the basic dynamic to understand about Tilt is that we had a natural viral loop that was built into our product. If we basically we had two sides of the marketplace, we had organizers and contributors. If you were an organizer to use the product successfully, you had to acquire contributors. Those contributors converted into organizers with some likelihood. And so that kind of just fed the loop. So we had this insight basically that quite literally retention drove acquisition there. And David and team did an awesome job building out the model of quantifying really to what extent that was the case. I think what was a little bit unique and what we did at Tilt was we had, we looked at everything with a community lens. And so uh, when we really started to map out our growth curves, we saw that within individual college campuses, we would see once the campus got up to a certain level of penetration, the network effects really kicked in and took off. And you could see that pretty clearly when we started to map this out. And so from that point on, we really started to structure our teams and look at our metrics on a uh, campus by campus basis. Um, and that led into a lot of the work that, that David did with, uh, with our growth models there. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. So in addition to frequency and intensity of usage that, that Mike mentioned, I mean, virality was one of our most important indicators of, of health. And so we literally looked at every single organizer that we had on tilt and rank order them by basically the, like the viral coefficient or the, or the V factor for them. So basically who or which organizers were bringing on the most contributors that then converted to new organizers. And we can model that pretty, pretty easily. Um, and, and, and see that. And then so we saw the campuses, like, like, like Mike said. But then once we started making this more of like a, a playbook and kind of uh, a growth strategy and me, me and my team basically would model every single campus in the U.S. basically, um, engage how penetrated that school was. And for those that were under, or under penetrated, um, we would put resources behind, behind them. And then those campuses that were more like at the penetrated level, we would kind of like go hands off and that it kind of grow organically from that point. So that allowed us basically to just prioritize campuses. Um, and be way more or, or have way more precision in, in our, uh, activities and allowed us to save more money and, and just kind of apply money, uh, in a more rigorous way. Yeah. What lessons can we take from the Stitch Fest experience? Yeah. Well, I want to be clear. Like Tilt, I think it, it was a really rewarding and educational chapter of, of both of our careers. I think it's not one that you know, traditionally see as a success story out here, right? Like it, we took on a lot of money. It sold to Airbnb for, um, for not a lot of money. And, uh, and, you know, I think sometimes you actually learn a lot more through those experiences than you do through ones that, you know, uh, seem to go well on the surface. I think, you know, Dan's earlier point around focus really rings true to our experience at Tilt. Like we tried to do a lot there, especially in a space where margins were like razor thin. If you look at Venmo, you know, they're not a standalone business, uh, backed by PayPal. Um, it was just a really, a really tough space. And I think, you know, I could, I could talk about that for a while, but really, um, focus was, uh, was something that, I really took with me from, from that experience and also focusing on like the right business with the right margin profile to begin with. At Stitch Fix, you know, it was, it was very different. So as I said, the, um, the company was much more mature at the time I joined there. And it was really a unique situation in that we had made it very far and the business was at significant scale without having any, anything that you would call a growth team. Um, even if, if you looked at our marketing team, it was all, it was focused on retention. Um, which, which was great. And retention, you know, had been super healthy for the business. We literally were, if we would have been dialing up demand, we would have been dealing with really long customer wait times. And so we just never really wanted to do that much on, on kind of user acquisition. I think 
we, by the time I joined, maybe about six months before, you know, that dynamic was starting to change a little bit. We also had an inkling that we thought we wanted to go public sometime in the, in the me- medium future and doing that without control over your u- user acquisition levers is kind of unacceptable. So, you know, the, the broad ask for me when I joined was build the in-house muscle to really have control of our user acquisition levers. And when you're doing that, I think it's, it is essential that you have performance marketing channels in that mix. We had a really strong uh, referral, kind of natural referral mechanism that was already happening with the business. And so the way the team, you know, I built out there was largely on uh, performance marketing. We were running a marketing budget that was, you know, um, much orders of magnitude larger than what we were running at Tilt. And really, I think the for me, what what I really was excited by that experience, I, I was not someone that had a deep interest or experience in, you know, retail or fashion before joining there. Stitchfix uh, was a data science personalization company. And I, I viewed that as being a really awesome platform to build a user acquisition program on top of. And I thought it gave us, you know, there's not too many companies that could differentiate on performance marketing. I think Stitch Fix actually is one of the few that I think can. We hired a lot of our data scientists. There was a lot of Netflix DNA. And if you look at some of the stuff they're doing around measurement of uh, performance marketing and attribution, like I think they're best in class. And so, you know, a lot of the experiments we were running there were how can we be the best at running, you know, not only digital channels, but actually a lot of offline stuff. So what was unique there is we had our growth team running TV advertising, podcast advertising, yes. you know, uh, channels like, like, you know, other distribution partnerships that I think were just, um, you know, you didn't see too many growth teams running. Normally they would stick that under kind of a, you know, a brand budget and have like less, probably less rigorous measurement, uh, considerations on them. this podcast brought to you by stitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, what's one key lesson from the Thumbtack era? Well, I think marketplaces are really interesting on this dimension, right? It's it's not first to market, it's first to liquidity. Or when you get to the point at which supply and demand can transact freely, um, that's how you win. And so if you were to build this model for marketplace, customer repeat rate, demand side repeat rate is the metric. And the way you drive repeat rate is to give them a great experience in terms of having all the supply they want on the marketplace. And so the growth story is much more about driving to liquidity than it is just about driving to scale. And so like the, the, uh, early team found a big unlock on the the demand side in terms of SEO. And it was throwing all kinds of consumer traffic um, at the demand side of the marketplace. And this was actually a very scary position to be in because uh, consumers were actually, we had a really low NPS. They were having a terrible experience. Uh, and this was the problem that I joined to solve. And we couldn't actually just start pulling the supply lever right away. We had to understand the marketplace and liquidity. And so we were in about a thousand categories. Um, that boils down to about 200 or so macro categories that we care about. Every city in the US, of which there's about 50 big ones. So there's 10,000 combinations of those in which you need individual liquidity. And so building that model was actually the most important part of our, our early growth strategy, understanding where we needed supply. And then what is the metric within that that you need to need to drive? So we actually like I built this in like a, you know, really basic spreadsheet version first. It's now much more sophisticated. But we we got to the point where uh, our bidding for all paid media, all of our pricing is actually tied to this liquidity model and and adjusts in real time to to drive supply to the right places. And much more important than just turning on acquisition in one of these places was making sure it was going to the right place. And that's what really drove the uh, drove the loop. Cool. Okay, so we got some examples. Let's get back to the practice of of building building growth teams and and building growth in organizations. So, a couple of questions. One is, what does the ideal growth team consist of? And two, let's talk about some more misconceptions that people have when uh, thinking about growth within their organization. 
So on, on the team side, I think the right way to frame this question is what metrics are you trying to remove? It might be acquisition, activation, retention, uh, and the right structure, the right team structure is the one where you have as close to one team or pod per metric. And then that team has everything they need to be able to get that done. And so like a, a team at the most basic level needs to be able to build that's engineering design, other things they need to be able to analyze so analytics, research, sometimes data science, and they need to be able to synthesize. So marketing or product or somebody who's taking all this feedback and building a roadmap and the specific people on the team will depend a lot on what you're working on. So if you're working on acquisition, it tends to be a little bit more marketing heavy. Um, conversion and retention is often more engineering led, uh, more product led. And so you might have different, um, um, pieces, but I think where teams really go wrong is is handicapping their teams by not giving them one of those or more of those weapons. Uh, and so the key thing is making sure all the right people uh, or all the right kind of tools are on the team. I think Dan nailed it. I mean, it's very company and context dependent. In general, you know, one principle is you want to minimize dependencies. Um, and so ideally, you know, it was Alex Schultz actually was an advisor of ours at Tilt. He's the VP of growth at Facebook. And one of the things he said is you could diagnose a team by their response to tough questions. Basically, they don't make excuses. They either can provide a very clear answer or acknowledge that they're going to look into it. He also said on teams, he said the growth teams never ring the gong. Uh, they generally always view their work as iterative and never done. And I like that. So that's when you think about the culture of what you build into these teams. I think I actually took a lot from my time with Alex. But in, in the spirit of minimizing dependencies, generally making sure that the team has the ability to design, implement, measure, and iterate on experiments on their own, you know, it, it, it is ideal. We say that growth teams are generally measured by their velocity of experimentation, whether they be on product or on marketing. And if you hold that as true, you really need to like unlock them and let them be um, autonomous. And so ideally within one pod, what that translates to is having some analytics, design, product, engine, marketing. As Dan said, the ratio of those will switch depending on what you're, it will vary depending on what, uh, what, you know, what objective you're working on. So one piece I would add, I, I totally agree with both of those uh, perspectives. When it comes to analytics, I think while it's important for them to be embedded within the pods to, to help measure and think through kind of what, what's going on, I think analytics also should be relatively objective and kind of like outside of the pod to some degree, where it's synthesizing the entire business's objective. And if it's like an acquisition-focused pod, that analytics person should understand what the implications are of of any marketing spend changes or, or growth changes, how that might affect product or retention down the road. And so I think them taking a more like high level view is is important for for businesses. This is a great point. Like analysts in some ways should keep you honest, and if yeah. you can keep them slightly like one step removed from your team, they're sometimes better at keeping you honest. Exactly. Yeah. One thing also to note with that is like the the DNA of even if an engineer has the same title on different teams, like the DNA of what attracts someone to work on growth is probably a little bit different than the DNA of what attracts you to work on the most complicated, you know, problem within a company, like generally people working on growth teams are motivated by moving the needle and seeing direct correlation between what they're working on and like business results. And, and that's not for everyone. Um, it's generally going to be, you know, scrappier, faster cycle work. And maybe I think as you're building these teams and recruiting folks to join them, I think it's important to keep that consideration in mind. Yeah. And uh, perhaps let's close on what are some misconceptions or non-obvious um, things that I, I should be thinking about as building a growth uh, growth organization. So, so one really interesting debate that I think leads to a misperception is whether product or distribution matters more. And there's there's people at one end of the extreme that will say a great product sells itself. Uh, I think like we can get into a bunch of growth people around the table. Obviously, nobody's going to say that's 100 percent true. Um, but I think actually the, the more important implication of this is that product strategy needs to be closely tied to distribution strategy. And the questions that I get 
from teams often suggest that people don't truly internalize that. Like how can we add SEO or add virality to the product? And it just like, you can never really bolt these things on um, in a way that I think people uh, want them to be able to. And so like, you know, if you think about the ways that a company gets big, there's like paid marketing and sales, there's SEO and content, um, there's uh, virality and referrals and maybe like a few other things, but really there's like three or four big lanes and, and winning at those becomes, you know, the, the companies that win optimize on the dimensions that matter to for that channel to a degree that is best in best in the world and this takes multiple years in many cases and so like if you're going to be great at paid uh, or if you're going to be great at paid marketing you need incredibly deep uh, and fast monetization if you're going to be good at seo you need to have a unique wedge on creating and curating content and these things take a lot of time to build and so like you can't just back into that i think like the reason that people sometimes say, I think that product is the, is the decider between, or, or the reason that people say product is more important is that you see companies or products come along every once in a while that turn this whole thing on their head and open up a new distribution channel. So like when Square created a self-serve product that had, uh, man or automated underwriting, all of a sudden they could use marketing and go after SMBs where everyone else was using sales and having to focus up market. And so, they changed the game in a way that opened up a new distribution channel and it was product led. That's not the same thing as saying distribution doesn't matter. It was just saying that product was like the wedge into that market. Yeah. I think one of the worst things you could do to, to Dan's point, one of the worst things you could do in setting up an org structure is splitting the company up into people that are responsible for building and other people who are responsible for growing. It's like that is just, I think, a recipe for disaster. I think the two should be deeply integrated and ideally you have growth built into, you know, your process for building product. Um, and that's, I think what we've been trying to say in like, <laughs> different, you know, different angles here throughout this conversation. You know, I think that one other theme I would add is just around AB testing. And I think many, many companies could take this too far. I think part of being an entrepreneur and building a business too, is also just like having conviction and knowing when you need to just go all in and dial things up to a hundred percent before you actually test it. I think AB testing is a, is a tool that is increasingly accessible to, uh, to teams nowadays. And it's almost tempting to just solve any dispute with, with a test. And in many cases, like I'm sure all of us lean more positive on AB testing than, than not, you know, but it was actually Andy Johns that had a very simple framework for this. Um, and he mapped out basically the Y axis is, uh, magnitude of experiment and x-axis is amount of traffic and basically if you're a company like facebook you could get by testing button colors and like really micro things over time and those will accumulate into pretty big wins just because your size of traffic is so high that these little micro improvements are actually going to move the needle if you're a startup just getting started like you should not be testing button colors you know these are so i, I think that as a as a concept they'd be testing i think could be really overused um and i think you know, companies would be uh, well suited to understand when when it does and doesn't make sense. Yeah, I guess one last simple point for for misconceptions. I mean, I think one common one is that growth equals marketing, and I think it's just not. I think growth is like the lifeblood of a company. The whole company needs to grow, and so it should be a whole company like team in some way. Like everyone should be thinking about growth, not just like marketers. Yeah, one of the things we um, we've done at at different companies is really trying to engage a lot of the company in in kind of generating growth ideas and and uh, taking part in experiment reviews. So like in all hands doing guess which variant one, which is maybe going to go against the point I just made on A-B testing because it is trying to get more people engaged in the test. But, but I think just really part of the growth team's responsibility is helping other teams in the company understand how they are contributing to the growth equation. And a lot of that is from analytics. But I do think thinking of growth is kind of the... Um, 
the, I guess, like curator of that, um, I think is another way to think about these teams. Totally. Yeah. I actually think like gross, most important legacy on this front might actually be as a tool for learning rather than a tool for making impact. And it starts with understanding your business and then this whole set of experimentation around how you take feedback to validate or invalidate that model. Um, and so I think uh, all of these points on when you should test, test at the extreme so that you learn the most, uh, it's all about how you can use the, use the methodology to drive learning. Yeah. Cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It's been a great interview for people who want to learn more about what you're up to and where they can follow you online and any last plugs, Mike. Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter, MDBO, and then all of our stuff is on Greylock uh, nowadays. So, um, so yeah, hit me up. Yeah. You find me on Twitter, uh, DW underscore Stein. Twitter at Dan Hockenmeyer. Awesome. And for people who want to learn more about the consulting. Yeah, we're at basisone.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 